good. Otherwise, it'd be a little awkward. Um, good morning, ARC. It's good to see everybody this morning. Y'all not awake. Y'all still sleeping. Good morning, ARC. That's a little better. Good to see everyone this morning. It's good to see Brother Andrew on the drums. Yeah, yeah. So as you guys know, the music ministry is still looking for folk to, to join their band, so to speak. So see Brother Andrew as a perfect example of that. And if you have some talents, if you can sing, if you can play, if you can make a joyful noise to the Lord, they'd be more than welcome to have you. Uh, so I know we have some Bibles that were being handed out earlier. I see uh, Astrid and Iris are still in the aisle. So if you do need a Bible, uh, if you would raise your hands high, they would come by and they would be happy to give you that Bible. If you do not own a copy of God's Word, you can consider that your own personal copy. Uh, if you do and you just need it for today, we kindly ask that you would return that uh, at the front uh, when you leave. All right? So with that, let us go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will get into it. Lord God, we do thank you for this day that you've given us. We thank you for um, just allowing us to gather freely um, and just lift up your name. Father, we don't take it for granted, at least I hope we don't, that uh, it is a privilege to gather. Father, we live in a country where we can walk in this building with no chains on the door, no guards that are trying to block us from coming in. Um, and we can come and we can freely worship you, Father. May we never take that for granted. May we always be eager uh, to come into the house of the Lord and to lift you up. And now, Father God, as we turn to hear a word from you, from your word, we ask, Lord God, that you would just speak through me um, to your people um, and that uh, they would hear exactly what it is that you would want them to hear. It's in your son's name I do pray. Amen. On September 8th, 2022, the current king, I'm sorry, the current queen of England, Queen Elizabeth II, passed. Immediately upon her passing, her son, Prince Charles III, technically became king. But it wasn't until later on May 6, 2023, that he had his coronation ceremony. So that ceremony started with a procession through the streets of England as King Charles and his wife rode in a horse-drawn carriage. They were surrounded by those guards that wear those bright red suits and those really, really funny-looking furry hats. I have no idea why they wear those hats, but they do. And they had those stoic looks on their face. And then they were taking a, a, a not a stroll, but a, a ride through the streets of England. And that procession ended when I believe they got to uh, Westminster Abbey where the coronation ceremony started, where King Charles was, had the crown put on his head and he officially sat on the throne as the King of England. And if you recall that day, if you were watching it from the stage, you'll remember that the streets were lined with hundreds, if not thousands of British citizens who were there cheering on their new king, waiting to, the, to get a glimpse of him on the procession or even if they were lucky enough to be in the church and see him actually crowned as king. But then on the main streets was the procession. On the main streets were those who adored their king. But on the side streets, there was protest. There were people who were wearing these bright yellow, not my king t-shirts. And they were yelling and screaming, abolish the monarchy. And so today, as we read from Psalm 110, David is going to show us something parallel. He's going to show us that Jesus 
is indeed king. And he's going to show us that just like in, in Britain, there are some that love him, but then there are some that hate him. But unlike the British who were wearing those bright yellow, not my king t-shirts, to reject Christ as your king is deadly. And that's what David's going to show us today in Psalm 110. So as we step through Psalm 110, we're going to see that this is a psalm about the reign of Christ. David uses this psalm to answer one question, and that's how we're going to spend our time today, answering that same question. What kind of king is Jesus? What kind of king is Jesus? And we're going to answer that one question in three ways. As we step through Psalm 110, we're first going to see that Jesus is our right now Messiah. And we'll see that in verse 1 through 3. As we continue to step through that psalm, we're also going to see that he is a forever priest. We're going to see that in verse 4. And then in verses 5 through 7, we're going to see that he is a future judge. So what kind of king is Jesus? He's our right now Messiah. He's our forever priest. And he's our future judge. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to Psalm 110. And I'll be reading from the ESV. And the words read this way. The Lord says to, I'm sorry, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are forever a priest, I'm sorry, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. So in verses 1 to 3, David is showing us that Jesus is our right now Messiah and King. Now, in order to see this aspect of his uh, kingship, we need to solve what I call the Lord, Lord riddle that's in verse 1. So in most of your translations, as you read verse 1, you'll see that there is the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, says to my Lord, capital L, lowercase o, lowercase r, lowercase d. And so last week, Pastor D did us a, a huge favor, and he let us know who capital L-O-R-D is. That Lord is Yahweh. That is the Lord that revealed, revealed himself to Moses. It is the Lord that gave the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. It is that same Lord who parted the Red Sea. So whenever an Israelite came to Psalm 110 and they read this particular verse, they immediately knew who the Lord was. It was Yahweh, the covenant name of God. The name of God that they were told in the Ten Commandments to never take for granted. That's who that Lord is. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is Yahweh. Now that other Lord, the mixed case Lord as I call it, that means Adonai. And that's a little harder to understand in the way that David uses this. But the word Adonai technically means master or ruler. It's a title and not a name actually. 
So what it normally means, if we were to take it outside of the Bible and we were to call somebody Lord, it would simply mean that that person that we're addressing as Lord has a, a authority or is somehow a ruler over us. So for all of our Star Wars troop or our Star Wars people out there, it would be like a stormtrooper calling Darth Vader Lord Vader, right? So as a stormtrooper, those people who are all dressed up in white, as they address Darth Vader as Lord Vader, they're simply saying that he has power over me. Now, coming back to Psalm 110, it's not abundantly clear, I don't think, to the Israelites at that time exactly who Adonai was. Because throughout the Old Testament, Adonai is used in different ways and in different places. Now, they would know it immediately from reading Psalm 110, verse 1, they would recognize this kingly language that David uses. They would immediately recognize that to sit at anybody's right hand was a place of honor, right? So it's just like when I'm driving in the car, we got the whole family in the minivan, I'm, I'm driving, but that right seat, that shotgun seat as we call it, that's reserved for my bride. Now, the kids, they may try to sit there, but they may catch one to their face if they try to, huh? Boy, they may catch one if they try to sit in my wife's seat because they know that seat is a place of honor. And as my bride, Mora holds a place of honor in our household. So she sits at my right hand. I guess that makes me the king, but that's for later. Uh, uh, Y'all like that one? Come on now. But Adonai, right, the way that it's used here, to sit at Yahweh's right hand, that's more than just an honor. That's more than riding shotgun in somebody's car. Even though Israelites may have not been able to positively identify who Adonai was, they would understand that for anyone to sit at the right hand of Yahweh was to somehow share in his rule. But again, because they don't have the, the benefit of the New Testament, like you and I do, they would not immediately be able to identify who Adonai was. But because you and I do have the New Testament, in this particular verse, Psalm 110 verse 1, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament. Meaning that if you were to go from Matthew to Revelation and pull out every single Old Testament verse in there and start making piles of them, Psalm 110 verse 1 would have the biggest pile. It is the most quoted verse from the Old Testament in the New Testament. And because of that, where Israel may have struggled to identify who Adonai was, you and I can positively and concretely identify Adonai as Jesus Christ. And so to do that, what I want to do is let's, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let's turn to Acts chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 32 through 36. Acts chapter 2, verses 32 to 36. And by way of background, chapter 2 starts with um, Peter, or the beginning of the section rather, is Peter giving a sermon. So this is on the day of Pentecost. They have already received the Holy Spirit. And at that time in Jerusalem, there were people from all over the world who were gathered. Now, after the disciples had received the Holy Spirit, if you know this part of history well, you know that they had started to speak in various languages. And these people who were gathered there from all these different parts of the world, they were able to understand everything that the disciples were saying in their native tongue. And so this crowd, they thought the disciples were drunk. And so Peter said, no, though, we're not drunk. It's only 3 a.m., but what we are is filled with the Holy Spirit. And then what Peter does is he breaks out into a sermon. And so we actually pick up his sermon in verse 32 towards the end of that sermon. 
And this is what we find in God's word. This Jesus, and this is Peter speaking, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, I'm sorry, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who you crucified. So from the words of Peter himself, we can see three truths right from this passage of scripture. One is that Adonai from Psalm 1 is Jesus. Jesus is the my Lord that David was referring to. Number two from these verses, we can see that Jesus' ascension from heaven to earth after his resurrection was his procession. Now, unlike King Charles, he wasn't surrounded by people with funny hats and, and red suits. He was surrounded in his procession from earth to heaven by the angels of heaven itself. And then verse 3, Adonai sitting at the right hand of God was Jesus' coronation, where he comes back to heaven. He sits down on his throne, and he receives the crown. So in other words, Psalm 110 is all about Jesus. We would call this a messianic psalm because the focus of this entire psalm is about Jesus and his messianic rule. Or in verse 36, as we see, he calls him Christ because he would save their people, or his people rather, from his sins. So if you flip back to Psalm 110, there's something else I want us to notice, and this is really key that we notice at the end of verse 1. So again, verse 1 says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand, and this is the part I want us to pay close attention to, until I make your enemies your footstool. And so what that means is that Jesus' messianic rule actually has an end date. Not meaning that he's no longer king, because remember, Jesus is God. So John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was God. The word was with God, and the word became flesh. Colossians 1 says that everything in creation, whether heaven or earth, was created by Jesus, for Jesus, and through Jesus. So Jesus is God. He was king in eternity past, and he'll be king in eternity future. But in Psalm 110, this is focusing on his messianic reign, which means that in verse 1, it comes to an end when his enemies are made his footstool. So what that means for us today is that the offer of salvation by this Messiah will not always be there. There will come a day when you will no longer be able to call on the name of Christ and be saved. And that day would come when Christ makes his enemies his footstool. And so that's very important to understand. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 25, Paul puts it this way. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. When I was growing up, I used to listen to an old school gospel group called the Winans. Anybody ever hear the Winans? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Amen. I didn't think I'd get that many woos from that. Right, but the Winans, they used to have these wonderful albums. They used to have many afros and these really crazy sweaters from the 80s. 
But one of, their fav one of my favorite songs in them, rather, was a song called Tomorrow. Anybody know that song, Tomorrow? Come on now. Now, I'm not going to sing it. I will not sing it. No, I ain't coming on. But the chorus of that song says, tomorrow, and I'm not singing, no. <laughs> Stop playing. <laughs> tomorrow, who promised you tomorrow? Better choose the Lord today, for tomorrow very well might be too late. And so the too late that the whiners were singing about that I will not sing is when Yahweh makes his enemies, Jesus' enemies rather, his footstool. The total and complete crushing of Jesus' enemies will mark the end of his messianic rule. And that's when Christ will return, the second coming of Christ. And when that happens, if at that point, if you had not accepted Christ as your Savior, it is now too late. His messianic rule will be over. He's still king, but you're no longer going to be able to call on him for salvation. So what do we do with this knowledge? What do we do knowing now that the Adonai in Psalm 1-1 is Jesus the Messiah? And I want to suggest two applications from this particular text for our lives. The first one is back in Acts. So I know I got you all flipping over. But if you go back to Acts chapter 2 and look at verses 37 to 38, you'll find these words. Now, when they heard that when they heard this, this being all the words that Peter had just preached, they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So why were they cut to the heart? Because they understood everything that Peter had just said. They understood that the promised Savior had come and did exactly what he promised. They understood that he actually saved his people, that he lived a perfect life, that he was crucified on the cross, taking upon himself the righteous wrath of God on their behalf, that he died, and as we read earlier, he was resurrected. And this same Jesus who was now resurrected, ascended to heaven, and is now crowned king. And so they understood that, and they were actually able to see their sin for what it was. And so they asked Peter and the disciples, what must they do? And then Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So as the wine said, tomorrow may be too late. Jesus' messianic rule, it will come to an end. And so the first application of Psalm 110.1 is that if you are here today and you have never accepted Christ as your Savior, if you have never cried out, what must I do to be saved? If you have never done what Peter says to do, if you have never repented, which simply means to turn from your sin, if you have never put your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, if you have never made him your right now messianic king, do that today. Tomorrow is too late. You never, tomorrow may be when he gives that knockout punch to his enemies and he cracks the sky. You never know. So when the old folks say today is the day of salvation, you should listen to them. Come to Jesus while you still have time. So putting our faith in Jesus, that's that first application of Psalm 110.1. But the second application actually comes back. I'm going to know I got a slip in, but go back to Psalm 110. It's all right. Let's look at verse 3, and that's going to be that second application of Psalm 110.1. So when you turn back there, you'll see the words there that say, yep, there we go. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. 
So the free, holy, and fresh offering of our lives is how we put into practice Adonai as our messianic king. So now if our king is ruling in the midst of our enemies and we are his people, what does that mean for us? That means that we're, we too are living in the midst of our enemies. And so before we try to put uh, Psalm 110.1 into action, we first have to understand that if our king is ruling in the midst of our enemies, that means that we have his, as his people are living in the midst of our enemies. So uh, Hebrews 2.8 puts it this way. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And listen to this part. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So what that means is, as our enemies are surrounding us, as we are living in occupied territories where there are traps, where there are missiles coming down, there are snipers on the roof, where the enemies of our king actually want to kill us, we first have to understand that that's the environment that we live in. But two, we also have to understand that God is still in control. Jesus is actually the king in heaven, seated at, seated rather at the right hand of God. Now, sometimes it doesn't look that way. Sometimes it looks like our enemies are prospering. That's what the, psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 73 says. But we have to remember that God is still on the throne. And so even when we feel the realities of the enemies around us in our lives, we have to persevere. But the question becomes, how do we do that? And so to do that, we keep reading in Hebrews. And so Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 goes on to say, but we see him for a little, I'm sorry, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Or consider what Hebrews 12, 1 to 2 says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so easily, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So when life reminds us that we are living in the midst of our enemies, and that they haven't yet been made God's footstool. Hebrews tells us that we should be looking to God when that happens. We look to Jesus and we remember his suffering. We remember his cross. We remember the crowns of thorns on his head. We remember his nail-pierced hands. We remember the fact that he tasted death for us so that we wouldn't have to. We look to Jesus and as we remember that, we also remember his crown. We remember that right now, Jesus, our messianic king, is seated at the right hand of the Father. And in remembering all that, remembering the cross of Christ and the crown of Christ, Hebrews would have us know that we then freely offer ourselves as an act of worship to our king. One commentator put it this way, reflecting on verse 3, all of life is the day of battle also known as the day of power in Psalm 110.3. When we serve the Messiah's cause with willing spirits, with our words and deeds, in our attitudes and actions, we participate in the victory that belongs to the Lord 
in our Messiah, Jesus. So we offer ourselves freely. Knowing that we are surrounded by enemies, we live lives of holiness, but we do that remembering the cross of Christ and the crown of Christ. And then like Psalm 110.3 says, like the dew in the morning, we offer him our best. As soon as we wake up and we see the dew on the, on the grass, as soon as we do that, that is the day and that is the time that we freely offer ourselves to our God. So that's how we put Psalm 110 into action. One, if we never have, we turn to Christ in faith. And then once we do that, we live out verse 3. We actually live out lives of holiness freely, not under compulsion, not like a draft, like my father used to be in the draft and he had, they had to draft him into the army. No, we, we, we show up freely, willingly, ready to serve our God on the battlefield for our Lord. So what kind of king is Jesus? He's our right now Messiah. So turn to him in faith and willingly serve him with your life. But he's more than that. So in verse 4, Yahweh says that he is our forever priest. So Psalm 110.4 reads this way. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, to understand this verse, I think we have to ask and answer three different questions. One, what is a priest? Number two, why in the world is God swearing? And then number three, what is so special about this character named Melchizedek? So first, what is a priest? And I like to describe a priest in comparison to what a prophet does. So as you go throughout the Old Testament and you look at the prophets of the Bible, you understand that they are facing the people with God at their back. So God is giving the prophet their word, and then the prophet as a middleman is now giving the word to the people. So they serve as a middleman, the mouthpiece of God. So you'll notice that the prophet often says, thus saith the Lord. Now a priest, on the other hand, does the opposite thing. They're actually turned around, pardon my back, but they're facing God with the people at their back. They represent the people to God. So that's what a priest does. It's the opposite of what a prophet would do in that they are still a middleman, but they represent the people to God. And so now then, why is God swearing? I like to compare what I see in verse 4 to when I was a kid, and I would make a promise to someone. Let's say I want to borrow a dollar from Pastor Dennis, and I promise to pay him back tomorrow, which I won't. But he would then, to, to see how serious I was, he would say, cross your needle, hope to die, stick a needle in your eye. Y'all ever say that when you were kids? No, Miss Brenda's like, we never say that. But that would be one way to prove to Pastor D that I would, be, I would promise to pay him back. Another way, if he really, really, really wanted to make sure that my promise was legit, at least where I was from in Philly, I would swear on my mama. Or, even worse, if your mother had already passed, you would swear on your mama's grave. If you ever swore on your mama or on her grave, whoever you were swearing to, they understood that your promise you would actually keep. But with God, he ain't got no mama. He has no beginning. He has no end. So because he can't swear on his mama, he swears on himself. So listen to this from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, 
saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is the final confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might be strong, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the author of Hebrews is saying that when God wants to show the recipients of his promise how serious he is, he guarantees it with an oath. And the way that he guarantees it with an oath is by actually swearing by himself. So in Psalm 110.4, where we see the Lord, Yahweh, swearing, this is God making an oath, guaranteeing the priesthood of Jesus, which the author of Hebrews says is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. But how was the forever priesthood of Jesus after the order of some dude named Melchizedek an anchor for my soul? And so that leads us to our third question. What is so special about Melchizedek? So earlier, Pastor Dennis was kind enough to read for us Hebrews chapter 7. Now, I'm not going to read that entire chapter because it's rather long, but I do want to point out certain things. And one of those things that I want to point out is that we actually don't know a lot about Melchizedek. He only appears in the Bible in three different spots. Once in Genesis, once in Psalm 110, where we're at now, verse 4, and then thirdly, in a few chapters in Hebrews. So we don't know a lot about him at all, but what we don't know about him is actually what makes him special. So verses 1 to 10 of Hebrews 7 offers a lot of background information on Melchizedek. Tells us what his name means. Tells us uh, that he was the king of righteousness, but also the king of peace. But the most important thing for us today as we consider Psalm 110 is to look at verse 3. So in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, we're told these words. Speaking about Melchizedek. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning or ends, I'm sorry, beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So the author of Hebrews is saying we know nothing about this man's mama, nothing about his papa. We don't know if he had kids. It's like he had no beginning and no end. And so because of that, the priesthood of Melchizedek that we're told in verse 1 that he was a priest of the Most High God, the author of Hebrews says that his priesthood was just like his life, without an ending and without a beginning. So the priesthood of Melchizedek is known as a priesthood that lasts forever. And this is the answer to the question about what makes him so special. It's the nature of his priesthood, the fact that it continues forever. So making Melchizedek's forever priesthood was the perfect kind of priesthood for Christ to now have. And so if you look at verse 21, for example, again, we're seeing verse 21 in chapter 7, this oath that we find in Psalm 110. So again, God has set this oath on his Adonai, Jesus, that his priesthood would last forever. 
And then if we go down or, or go back up rather to verse 16, we read these words. Speaking of Jesus as in his priesthood, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. So as we were talking about earlier, Jesus' coronation as Messianic king started after he was resurrected, after he ascended into heaven, and after he sat down at the right hand of the Father. This is also when his forever priesthood started as well, at his coronation. So again, he tasted death for us once, but now that he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he will never taste death again. Hebrews says that he is indestructible. He's the original Wolverine. All right, so Wolverine, you can't kill him. He's indestructible. But before Wolverine, there was Christ, the forever priest. He cannot die. And because he cannot die, he holds the office of priest forever. So look at Hebrews 7, verses 23 to 24, and we find these words. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds, speaking of Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. So if our salvation through Jesus was like the Levitical priesthood, it's possible that we would experience a lapse, a lapse rather, in our salvation. It would be like having a lapse in our insurance coverage. So let's say I have insurance on day one, but I lose it and I don't get insurance again until day 15. If I get in an accident on day 10, I got to pay for all those damages myself. The insurance doesn't cover that anymore. So in the same way, if Jesus was like a Levitical priest, if somehow he was no longer indestructible and he could die, I could have a lapse in my salvation coverage. So if, if somehow he was not indestructible, if somehow his priesthood did not continue forever, and I was to sin and die during this lapse of coverage, that means like in that accident, I got to pay for my sins myself. So the beauty of the forever priesthood of Christ, the fact that he is indestructible, the fact that he is always on his job as our priest, facing the sovereign God of the universe on my behalf, means that my salvation is secure. It is eternal. There is no doubt that I will ever lose my salvation, not because I'm so good, but because he is a forever priest. So what do we do with this? Well, one, let's listen to the language of Hebrews 7. Verse 22 says he guarantees a better covenant. Verse 24 says he permanently holds his priesthood. Verse 25 says he completely, some of your translations will say, saves to the uttermost. And then verse 25 says, he always intercedes, guarantees, permanently, completely, always. Notice the absolute nature of these terms. Our salvation is secure because Jesus makes it so. So in Psalm 110.4, when Yahweh says that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, what Yahweh is saying through the hands of David is that our salvation is secure because Jesus is at the right hand of the Savior. So what do we do with that? Well, one, I think we want to rest in it. Knowing that my salvation in Christ is secure, we have to allow this truth to do what Hebrews says that it does, to be a steadfast anchor to my soul. 
So remembering again that because our priest right now, I'm sorry, our king rather, is ruling in the midst of our enemies, and I'm living in the midst of our enemies, that means life is not always roses. Life ain't always been no crystal stairs. And so when I'm feeling the impact of life, when that sin that so easily ensnares tries to cling to me, when those things happen, I have to remember that I have a forever priest in heaven who is always interceding on my behalf. Now, this doesn't mean that I use the security of my salvation as a license to sin. That would be blasphemous. But what it does mean is that I draw near to God when I do sin, repenting and asking for forgiveness, knowing that I am assured of his forgiveness because he always intercedes for me. So as opposed to using my assurance of forgiveness as a license to sin, I now use it as a license to draw near to him, to live freely for him, in holiness for him. Or as Romans 12, 1 says, I present my body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is my spiritual worship. So this is how the priesthood, the forever priesthood of God should be applied to my life. I should rest in it because it is something that is secure. And then finally, in Psalm 110, as we go back there, verses 5 through 7, you'll notice that if you are not one of God's people in verse 4, if you are one of his enemies, if you have not put your faith and trust in him as Savior, you do not know him as your messianic king. You do not know him as your forever priest, but you do know him as your judge and as your destroyer. Hear these words from Psalm 110, 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Notice how many times David records here, rather, he will. He will shatter kings. He will execute judgment. He will shatter chiefs. He will drink from the brook by the way. He will lift up his head. All these he wills means one thing. The destruction of Jesus' enemies is sure. He will do it. Corrupt kings will be shattered. Heads of states will be crushed. But not just that. God's judgment is going to go through the nations, filling nations with corpses. So I know right now around the world there are several conflicts. And unfortunately, there are times when they flash these pictures of dead bodies. Think of that and multiply it. That's what's going to happen to God's enemies. And then this image in verse 7 is like that of a marathon runner. So in a marathon, I've been told, because I'll never run one, but I've been told that the, the goal is to run to completion. So as you start that race, knowing that there are miles ahead of you, you never stop. But along that race, along that marathon route, there'll be people there with water cups, and I've seen it on TV, they take it, they throw the water in their face, and they sip some water, but they do that to refresh themselves so that they can complete the race. That's exactly what Christ is doing here in verse 7. He's not stopping until his enemies are crushed, but along the way, this marathon race of making his enemies his footstool, David says that he will get some refreshment, but he's not going to stop. He's going to run that race. He will crush his enemies. They will become his footstool. And so with that, if you are one of his enemies, as we've already said, today is the day 
of salvation. So what kind of king is Jesus? According to Psalm 110, he's our right now Messiah. We can turn to him for forgiveness of sins and the salvation of our souls. But just like the wine and said, there is an expiration date. Tomorrow may be too late. So we first, we come to him. We turn to him in repentance and faith. And then just like in verse four, we live lives freely in lives of holiness. But he's also our forever priest. He continually intercedes to God on my behalf, guaranteeing my salvation all the time. There's never a lapse in my salvation coverage. And then finally, if I am his enemy, he's my judge. He's my destroyer. He will crush me as my sins deserve. But there's a message of hope this morning. The fact that you can still hear me means that God's enemies are not yet his footstool. That means that today is still a good day for salvation. That means that right now is not too late. So if you are here, if you have never accepted Christ, do that today before his enemies become his footstool. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 110 that reminds us that you are king, that in heaven, Adonai has been crowned. He has had a coronation ceremony after he was resurrected and ascended on high. So, Father, we thank you for Christ the Messiah and for his rule. We thank you for the offer of salvation that is made to each and every single person that ever hears the gospel. Father, we thank you for the forever priesthood of Christ in knowing that if we are indeed in Christ, there is no chance ever that I would ever lose my salvation because Christ is indestructible and he forever, always, at all times is interceding to God the Father on our behalf. And so we thank you for that this morning. And Father, we even thank you for the promise of your uh, crushing of your enemies, knowing that you are God, that you are sovereign, and that you are king, and that you must judge sin for what it is. And so, Father, we simply ask that if there is anyone here today who has never put their faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, we ask that you would open their eyes to the beauty of Christ and that today they would come asking, what must they do to be saved? We ask all these things in your son's name we pray. Amen.